so we are live and I want to welcome the people in the audience who are live with us as well to the 10X Managers podcast and I want to have a big thank you to Clara for joining us today and um, who's going to talk a little bit about her experience of being a manager leader and what she sees working in the world today as well. So thank you for joining us, Clara. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, to kick us off, do you want to give a brief introduction to yourself and uh, your experience as well? Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Clara um, and I am a head of people and I started my career not really knowing what I wanted to do and kind of fell into the recruitment side of, of HR um, and, and enjoyed it, but knew I wanted to kind of be part of that bigger HR kind of full people, team and talent and culture and all of the stuff um, that kind of is packed in to, to a generalist role. So I love the kind of startup scale up world. Uh, and I kind of really built my career over the last four years with a company called Yieldify, um, who are a SaaS e-commerce business. Um, and I've recently moved to another startup, even smaller, just to kind of test and push myself further um, for a really kind of um, hopefully high growth, uh, well uh, kind of funded company called Olsam, who are in the FBA aggregator space. So still within e-commerce, but on the kind of uh, the other side of it now. So looking at D2C and, and obviously uh, marketplaces and, and Amazon. So, yeah, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> Fantastic. And thank you for that. And um, for people in the audience today as well, if you have any questions for Clara, please just drop them in the chat box on the right hand side and I'll make sure they get asked as well. Um, but to kick us off, then, Clara, <laughs> shall we talk about what you see as the role of a manager? Yeah. So, um, I thought I've been thinking a little bit about this because I think it has changed recently um so i think more and more now the role of uh the managers becoming more pastoral um so people are expecting support in ways that you know they haven't previously whether that's pre the pandemic or pre hybrid working or, or just different generations um, and i think the expectations of a manager are to care deeply uh, about their employees and to be that kind of voice uh to the wider company so um i think the, the role has changed and i think the manager has two key functions one is obviously to to drive the business towards success so you've got company goals bottom line whatever you know the company Companies objectives may be, uh, but balancing that with caring deeply about their team, um, bringing a level of kind of human to human interaction to their day to day work that means that we care about what goes on outside of, you know, the nine to five, nine to six, nine to four, whatever working hours we have. Um, but, but understands that, that when people come to work, we are asking them to bring them their whole selves down. Um, so that's like a really, it's not entirely new, but I definitely think the focus is more so on that recently than before. Um, and now as well, I think that that pastoral care is becoming a primary need for employees. So it's not kind of second now to, you know, a great company mm. name or, you know, a huge team or good pay. That's almost kind of at the forefront of what employees are expecting from their company. And of course, managers are the people to deliver that for us. So, yeah, a complicated role for anybody to undertake and one that needs a lot more support now than ever before, I think. Definitely. And it's, it's a really interesting point as well. I, I think, like you said, I think there has been, I think it still is, there's been a massive shift from a manager is there to produce results and make sure the team performs through to actually employees are now demanding that their managers are there for them and supporting them and caring for them and making sure that they can have that work-life balance that they really want and really get the support that they're looking for. Do you think businesses are doing enough to 
recognize that shift from their managers because I, I see a bit of a contradiction stuff in businesses demanding results and employees demanding support and that can kind of leave a manager in the middle being tucked between the two yeah and especially in the world i work in kind of scale up startup people are you know being promoted or not and are on career trajectories that kind of accelerate their growth and quite often that pushes them into a manager role so you've got a lot of first time people managers at the moment, I, I do think we're still playing catch up. I don't think there's the support there the same way that you might transition somebody else or, or have kind of a ramp up period. I do think people are being thrown into management positions, um, usually because they're really good individual contributor, which isn't, mm. you know, completely wed to this idea of being a good manager. So um, that that's really interesting. And, and no, I don't think we do quite enough to support. But also, I think the expectation of the manager uh, I was at an, a networking event last week. We were having a conversation around, say, for example, the four-day week. And quite a mm -hmm. lot of people there were managers or people ops people. And they were going straight into how could you implement the four-day week and what are the benefits? What are the logistics? How would you get people um, to buy in on a leadership team? Uh, but nobody had stopped to ask why. Why do our employees want a four-day week? Is it because they can switch off on a Friday and they can switch off on the weekend? That just isn't enough and they want more time? Or is it because employees are really finding it hard to switch off? And actually, if we address that kind of work-life balance from a five-day week perspective, do we need a four-day week still? The answer may be yes, mm. but actually equipping managers to think outside of the box and not just how do we solve this, but how do we get to the root cause of work-life balance, employee satisfaction? Um, so, yeah, it's, there's a long way to go, and it has to be employee-led as well. Um, you have yeah. to understand what employees want and, and you need to the tools and the resources and the communication lines to understand that in the right way and in a timely way before people start to want to leave or, or lose motivation as well. Yeah, you're, and you're absolutely right. It's because that's what happens, isn't it? Is a good idea comes about like the four-day working week and then we all just kind of blindly jump on it and be like, oh, that's a good idea and we all follow it. But you're absolutely right. It's taking a step back and understanding what is the purpose of it? What it's actually trying to solve? And like you said, making sure that's all kind of employee-led. Is there anything that you'd recommend or you do to make sure that you are capturing the employee voice and understanding what employees are actually asking for? Yeah, so one, obviously tech and software, there's so much in the kind of HR tech stack space now, um, but there's a lot that you can do with kind of employee engagement surveys, pulse surveys, and all these different kind of touch points. I do think these are really useful. Um, they're only useful if you take action, though, because people will stop giving you honest opinions if they feel that it's wasted on kind of deaf ears or, you know, you have a reluctance to change or take on that feedback. Um, but I also think it comes back again to managers. Managers really need to build that that environment where people feel really safe at work to speak about these things and give honest feedback. So um, it's a bit of both. Yes, the tech is great, but you need that human to human approach alongside it for it to really feel, um, feel personal, feel human, feel individual for that person. Yeah, and so as, as a manager who may be like, let's put myself back in my position where I was at Gartner, I was a sales manager of kind of six people. Um, I, was, I was having obviously my one-on-ones with them, but we didn't really have any formal way to collect feedback. Um, and like you said, there's now almost an overwhelming amount of ways that we can actually capture feedback. Is there any specific thing that you would put in place as a manager to make sure that the, the right things are happening, you're collecting the right feedback? 
Yeah, so regular one-to-ones um, and, and different types of one-to-ones as well. I think it's really important to understand what your direct reports need, what your team needs, because everybody is different. Um, and to put time in to discuss these things. So, of course, you need like a, a weekly one-to-one or a touch point either with your team or with individuals to talk about goals and progress and blockers and career support. Um, but it's also really important to find time to just ask how somebody is. You know, did they understand everything in the all-hands meeting? How do they feel that this person has resigned? Um, and, and being, you know, the go-to person for that support. And sometimes I think... HR, uh, people, you know, whatever you want to, to call us, we become the middleman because people don't feel they can go to their manager. So they come to us mm-hmm. and yes, we're there and we can solve them. And we like to think we're great empaths and, and we can be strategic with these issues. But what we really need to do is build that manager relationship because we can't mm-hmm. be 50 people, 1,000 people, 20,000 people's go-to. The manager has to be able to, to hold that relationship and, and be you know, creating spaces for this feedback. Definitely. No, some, some really interesting points there as well, Clara. And, and what, one thing just to kind of wrap up this idea about being a more pastoral manager and, and, and kind of nurturing manager, it comes back to the point of measurement. So typically the way a manager is measured is by business results or it's output, it's what's delivered, whatever their function is. Um, how can we measure ourselves as managers if we are dealing with this kind of more people side, perhaps softer things that don't have quantifiable impact. How can we measure whether we're being successful or not? Absolutely. And I'm a massive advocate for management KPIs because I think they, you know, it is a role to itself. It isn't an individual contributor role. Um, And I typically, some really useful metrics that I look at is one tenure within the team. So if you have a great environment and it's not just you and your relationship as a manager, but, you know, you're making sure that they feel supported, that they have career growth, that they're, you know, culturally safe within in the company as well, people will stay. Um, Now that's not the most indicative uh, metric because good people do leave because you, you can't always have the next role for everybody. Um, but I do think that's a really good one. And another is engagement scores. So you can break them down to reporting lines and, and departments um, and you can capture so many different um, pieces of information there from you know, whether somebody feels they have a good work-life balance, whether they feel um, comfortable approaching their manager with feedback, all of these kind of things that can really help to build an engagement score around a manager. Um, Mm. But again, it's making sure the manager is front and center of that, because if you're supplementing them, you're not getting kind of true KPIs for for their management style and their management competencies. So um, yeah, a a complicated answer, I guess. No, no, it's interesting. It's not actually something I've come across before in terms of having kind of a manager specific engagement score in terms of the people in there. Again, is there a simple way that a manager can get started with this to, to, to start trying to understand how that, that's being rated and how their employees are feeling about them? What, what, what sort of things can we do? Absolutely. So, again, investing in, in tech um, that can do these kind of poll surveys and can do these um, focused insight surveys. Um, I do think that as much as we create an open and honest environment, people are more willing to give feedback when it's kind of, you know, they can do it in their own privacy on their computer. Um, And then also, you know, speaking to your teams and asking them what can we do better um, and allowing them maybe to run sessions with you on, on initiatives and stuff. So, you know, tech isn't the solution to everything. It really helps and data 
helps. It really does. But being able to to give power to your team to feedback to you and give you ideas as to what yeah. could happen um, or be made better. You can't always implement them all, but even just having an open forum and explaining why you can't implement them all is really important as well. That's great. And is there any specific tech platforms that you would recommend for people to have a look at? So I've used so many, um, so many, not that many, uh, like a, like a, <laughs> five, six. Um, I really love things like CultureAmp, Lattice. They are really good. Um, I've recently just implemented Bob. Um, and then you can do kind of online surveys as well um, through like kind of sur paper survey platforms. I would always suggest an engagement platform um, because you can do multiple things on, on one and, and you can quite often kind of draw conclusions between surveys and um, Pulse Survey, for example, does exactly what it says. It manages the pulse of your company and that's quite good for insight um, and kind of the reaction to key events within the company and then engagement surveys are, are much more for taking action and, and taking stock of your company culture and how do you kind of top up that inventory? How do you change that inventory moving forward to, to supplement whatever may not be where you need it to and protect the things that are working really well. So um, yeah, the, those three, but there are so many out there and there are more, you know, getting started. It's, it depends what your organization needs. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, okay, going to move on slightly with, with the conversation, Clara, uh, and move a little bit more to yourself personally, um, and to look at your specific superpowers. So what is it that you believe you are great at in terms of being a manager and a leader? I think I'm really good at putting my ego to one side, um, coupled with maybe sometimes too high a level of empathy. I think they're my two superpowers, although I do think that the empathy one can become, um, you know, difficult at times if you care too deeply um, and take things on. But um, I, I think those, I like to think I really genuinely care about people. I'm hoping I'm not just telling myself this um, to make myself feel good, but I tend to, to think about, you know, processes and, and what you should do, but also how you actually implement them, how it affects the person, both professionally, actions, you know, psychologically, how they're feeling. So yeah, I think approachable and, and uh, empathetic. <laughs> That's great. Let's dig into empathy for, for a second as well, because I think it's a trait that I think lots of managers and leaders have and need as well, and also can develop, obviously. Uh, but you mentioned something very interesting there in terms of the potential downsides of empathy. Uh, and how actually you can end up being too empathetic and care too much. Tell us a little bit more about that. How's that played out? Where's that caused you problems in the past? Yeah, I think maybe because I think it can cause quite a few problems. But if I categorize it into kind of for you personally, if you are over empathetic, but also for the business, um, <laughs> the objectives of your too empathetic. So I think personally, you know, we're told to bring our whole selves to work. We're told to, you know, really deeply about our work and our teams and we're told to kind of be more human and that's great um but if you, you you put yourself out there and you do all of those things all the time that's a huge emotional weight and it's very difficult to switch that off come 6 p.m and so you will find yourself you know letting these people into your entire life you know you'll think about them at the weekends if you know something's awful happening uh to them you'll, you'll want to support them you know out of hours and, and that's great but the bigger your team is the more difficult that is to scale. And so when you have uh -huh. like a small team like me and a startup or a scale up and you're three, four, five people, you can be really close knit and really kind of empathetic to each other inside and outside of work. 
But as that scales, you know, if you're in a 100 person team, a 500 person team, that becomes really difficult. And so you need to find ways to, to scale empathy. Um, and then for the business, there are business goals. There's a PNL, you've got EBITDA, whatever your, your company goals yeah. are. And unfortunately, uh, you can't always come to solutions that the empathetic side of you wants to. And you have to learn when, you know, to, to be really honest with people when, when you do have to let people down. And sometimes people's expectations are too much. Um, and you have to be able to, to combat that. And you can empathize, but you still need to take, um, you know, action that's aligned with business objectives. So I think for the business, you have to keep yourself in, in check as well. Um, a company wants to be empathetic, but they also want to be profitable and, and, and the balance there can be tricky sometimes. And how do you find that balance? And obviously it's a very situational question, but have you got any principles that you, that you run by to make sure you do find the right balance there for yourself? For me, it, it comes, yes. So I, I had a really difficult situation where, um, I had to make people redundant during a pandemic, um, which I think mm -hmm. quite a lot of people, leaders found themselves in. And we looked at all of the options and there really was nothing else to do. And, and it was the smallest kind of pool that we could um, do. We, we thought about all these other things. We tried other options. Obviously you had furlough and stuff like this, but for the we had a huge book of travel clients that all went in the pandemic so it was a really difficult situation and the empathetic side of me did not want to have those conversations and you know there must be another way and maybe everybody could take a pay cut and you know all of these kind of things and i knew that the solution we'd come to was the best we could get to so the way i tackled it and since then i think this has been like a key to tackling these sorts of situations is just to always do it with a genuine care it may not be the news you want to deliver. It may not be the solution you want to offer. But if you can care about the person in that moment, it's not for me to get upset. You know, it's all about them. Um, and, you know, can you do other things? So can they keep their laptop? Can you offer them your network? Can you support them in their career after um, they leave your company? And it's just from a caring point of view with the solution that you have in place what more can you do to support and show that you you know you're genuinely in a place of support even if you can't offer the solution that that person wants so that helps me because um you know and and strangely you know quite i think it was two or three of the people that we made redundant reached out to me afterwards and we're still you know really really um you know we're in each other's networks and they've done really well for themselves and they've kept me up to date so you know, that could have been an awful situation but it, it, when you handle something with care and they can still be upset and that's, you know, all, all in, that's absolutely fine. But yeah, I think just handling every situation with genuine care helps and it goes a long way. No, that's great. And we've actually got an audience question as well from uh, James here, Clara, uh, and he's picked up on when you started and you mentioned you started in recruitment and you started in that kind of side of HR. Um, He's mentioned that he is in the uh, technology line and he has to hire developers, which is a very tough place to be in right now. Um, and do you have any recruitment top tips or advice of how people can uh, navigate that tricky space at the moment? Yeah, so tech talent's really hard because it's such a narrow talent pool. It's overly competitive. The tech industry is booming, especially in the pandemic. So many things moved online. Um, and even investment right now, like some of the biggest uh, investment rounds in Europe for tech companies. So it's hard and, and there's no getting away from that. Um, 
there are kind of three different approaches. The immediate one that I've taken is international talent. You know, get certificates of sponsorship, you know, work with your team, see how flexible they can be, not just for sponsoring international talent to come over, but actually to, to support and hire remote workers as well. So there's fantastic software like Deal, Oyster, that can help you with kind of employer of records where you don't have entities. Um, so first of all, you know, can you be flexible with that? Um, second is, you know, you may have to pay more than you want for tech talent right now because it's competitive. So if you are adamant that you want domestic talent, you want people in the office five days a week, you are going to have to pay for it. Um, in, in terms of attracting that talent, obviously, one thing I found with, especially specifically with tech talent is they don't respond that well to messages on LinkedIn or, or recruiters. Um, and so I've used platforms like Hired, where kind of engineers market themselves, um, but also mm -hmm. like going onto like GitHub or um, open source code. Uh, websites and, and building a community within your current tech team to, to bring people in and um, there. And then thirdly, and this is a long-term approach, start building your own talent pool. Um, if you are fortunate, and, and I have not been yet, but if you're fortunate to be in a company that has the resource, can you fund, you know, women getting into tech? Can you go and support okay. um, grassroots schools with, you know, really motivating people to get into the tech space so that that talent pool grows and you're not going to feel the effect of that instantly um but in five years uh -huh. time you could you know build yourself as a real employer of choice for somebody that's invested in um growing tech talent um and you know yeah so yeah three approaches i guess but it's really hard <laughs> no it is really hard but I, I i the thing that i really like about what you said there is rather than treating recruitment as being kind of a transaction, which I think what a lot of people do do is you kind of come to recruitment when you need it and you try and find someone. Everything you mentioned there is actually treating it more as kind of a product in itself as it's looking at the market that you're trying to work with. It's looking at the, the, the kind of tech talent that's out there and how can you add value to them? How can you actually approach them in a way that, that suits them? So it's going to the platforms that they're already on. It's creating community. It's creating programs that bring them into your network and into your kind of uh, reach as well. Um, and I really like that. I think that's a, a way that not many people think about recruitment. I think is a, a, a powerful way that a lot of people can kind of shift that mindset. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no worries. It's, yeah, it's recruitment's very hard at the moment, tech especially, but, but any recruitment. I think we're in, in a world at the moment where your offer can always be beaten, your current team can always be poached. So it's more important than ever now that we work on relationship and community because that's yeah. what's gonna um you know keep people if you have a chance of keeping them yeah no absolutely no thank you for that um okay so let's um move the conversation on slightly um into maybe the biggest challenge that you faced um, throughout your managerial leadership career as well so is there anything that stands out as being kind of maybe the toughest moment you've uh, you've come up against Apart from the pandemic, <laughs> which I don't know if that's everyone's <laughs> answers, because that, that was really difficult. And maybe um, like the, the position I'm in, like, and who I am, I guess, I'm quite often the only woman and the youngest member of the executive team. And that is, you know, I've worked so hard and I'm, I'm super appreciative of, of where I am. 
Um, and I know as well, you know, a company could grow, for example, the company right now could grow tenfold in the next year. And I may not be able to step up into say like a, a CPO role or a VP mm -hmm. role. And, and there may be somebody brought in ahead of me, but um, I guess getting people to take me seriously when I don't have 10 years of experience. And I'm a huge advocate as well for uh, balance amongst teams. So I, I absolutely, and I've benefited it, benefited from it myself. I believe in the potential of people. I believe in high growth talent. I believe in, you know, people that haven't done it 10 times before, but can do it in this moment. But I really uh -huh. think that needs to be balanced with people who are experienced as well, uh -huh. because, you know, somebody who's done it for 10 years and can say, I've done it, you know, 10 times for three different environments. And these are my learnings, you know, that is hugely valuable. So um, it's making sure I'm in the right environment where I'm supported, but also have experience around me, but also finding ways to bring across my ideas when I don't have that experience to fall back on. And usually the answer is always data and business cases um, and, and getting people not to buy into my idea, but to buy into the, the business case. Mm -hmm. So maybe that is something, and I, I will struggle with that until I have that experience. So we're talking, you know, the next five, six, 10 years until I can say, you know, I'm a, in a 10 year experience. My job got four years now. So we're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. And, and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, um, but I know I've spoke to a lot of other people in similar situations to you that, that have shared this with me, but there's a sense of imposter syndrome and am I good enough to be here? And all of those things that come with being younger, coming into a team of perhaps more experienced people as well. Uh, is that something that you come across? Yeah, absolutely. I think I've always struggled with um, imposter syndrome, but um, I cannot for the life of me remember the exact quote. And I can't remember who said it, but recently I read an article and it was something like, you know, I don't like, yes, I have imposter syndrome, but I'm leaning into it and I'm saying I'm here mm -hmm. and I'm going to have the best time while I'm here because, you know, mm -hmm. you've got that invite. You're at the table. You're, you're doing the role. Um, and I, I liked this idea of, of really leaning into it because I don't think it's something that I can easily fix. And, and I'm also a person that never feels I've done enough, never feels that my work is good enough. I'm always striving for the next thing. Um, so I just have to lean into that and, and give myself pause and recognition sometimes as well, because when you have imposter syndrome, sometimes you think the solution is just to work harder than everyone else and to yeah. prove yourself more than everyone else. And that leads to burnout. So it's, you know, saying yeah. every now and again, wow, you know, well done. Um, you, you've, you've achieved something or you, you are somewhere or, you know, you get to influence this, you get to work with these people, aren't you lucky? Um, so yeah, imposter syndrome is, I think more people than not feel it. Um, yeah. I agree with you as well. I think so. I, th I think quite often it's uh, people feel it, but perhaps aren't in a culture where they feel comfortable enough to even admit that they've got it. Yeah. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. But that's great. And we're coming up to time, Clara. So I'm going to ask you the final question that, that we uh, we do ask everybody. Uh, but it's about thinking about a time that's perhaps had the biggest impact on you. Uh, and again, that's fairly open to interpretation uh, in terms of it could be impact on you or the team or, or a business, but just something that really stands out in your mind as a, a moment that had a big impact. So 
I, maybe I'll be a little bit selfish and do one for me recently that's had a huge impact. And that was securing my second head of people role at All Sam because tying it into imposter syndrome, you know, I spent this all this time thinking that I was lucky to be in this position and I had to work really hard and be better all the time. And to actually secure a role at, at, at the same level at a different company and for somebody else to believe in you. It's a bit like, you know, when Messi left Barcelona, oh, can you do it at another team? And that's still to be confirmed. But that's kind of how I felt. I felt like the team had been built around me and I was doing really well, but that was because of all these other factors and not because of me. So to secure the role and, you know, I've, I've been here for a month now, you know, I'm still to, to be you know, to prove myself, but I feel comfortable and confident here. And I feel like people respect me and I feel like they really do believe in me. And so that's a huge kind of um, aid to, to imposter syndrome and, and to help to just feel like I can do this and I can do this somewhere else. And I've left Barcelona and I am in another team and, and I can do it still. So um, yeah, sorry, it's a very poor football metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> no no I really like it and I think like you said there is it's you being able to take confidence that somebody else has put you in this position um it's not that you kind of got lucky and you've ended up here it's someone has had the confidence in your ability and you as a person that you can execute what they need to be done in that role uh, and then you just need to go uh, go and do it like you know that you can yeah, just um, to card. <laughs> <laughs> but no I think that's us um out of time Tara but thank you so much um for joining us today um there are loads of points in there that I'm sure um, lots of people can take, implement and, and go and make a change in the way that they are leading and managing at the moment. Um, and I'm sure if anybody watches this after the fact on the podcast um, or within the community as well, um, if you've got any questions for Clara, drop them in the community and we'll make sure that Clara can uh, follow up with you as well and answer those. So thank you to the audience. Thank you to Clara. And uh, we will end it there. Thank you so much. Have a great day.